Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, parenting these days can be very reactionary. We have lots of pressure and little time and often many feelings of not being enough, constantly striving, competing with others, and overall disconnection. We have big reactions, or perhaps we might say our big reactions have us. But what if we practiced more aware parenting? What if we became more in touch with our own senses, our mental state, our bodies, our relationship to ourselves and to others, and how our awareness could affect our parenting and our lives. When we become aware and reflective of our reactions and what is indeed feeding these reactions, we can become more receptive, calm, balanced, compassionate, and positive in the way that we parent our kids and more balanced in our own well-being. And imagine what we could teach our kids. By showing awareness and practicing awareness, we can then teach them to do the same in their own lives. So is there a way to cultivate this awareness? Is there a way that we can teach our kids to practice this awareness as children and teenagers? For these questions and more, we turn to our guest today, Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on the development of Mindsight, which teaches insight, empathy, and integration in individuals, families, and communities. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both the professional and lay audiences. His four New York Times bestsellers are Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and two books with Tina Payne Bryson, PhD, The Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline. His other books include The Developing Mind, The Pocket Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology, Mindsight, The Mindful Brain, The Mindful Therapist, The Yes Brain, also with Tina Payne Bryson, and his book, Aware, coming out this month. Dr. Siegel also serves as a founding editor for the Norton Professional Series on Interpersonal Neurobiology, which contains over 60 textbooks. Welcome, Dr. Siegel, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Dr. Silverman, a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so thrilled you're here. Before we get into the meat of the matter, for those people who haven't had the opportunity to meet you and read your books or your articles, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in using awareness to improve relationships and our lives? Well, those are great questions. You know, the thing that really gets me going in the morning is the idea that we can use our minds and our relationships to actually change our lives, change the very structure of our brains, and even improve the health of our bodies by using awareness. And each morning I wake up and I do a practice called the Wheel of Awareness. But in addition to that, we have a way to see how fundamental processes of integration, which is a process we can talk about, can be cultivated as a parent in your own inner life, as well as in the life that you have with your kids. And this is basically a very empowering approach to parenting and living day to day. Mm, I'm really curious about all of this. And I've read through your book, but I would love for you to help our audience of teachers and parents and coaches who work very much with children uh, for an extensive part of each day. If you could tell them a little bit more about what this wheel of awareness is and how we can use it 
uh, in our own lives and just being aware of it as people who work with children as well. Absolutely. Well, it's a very simple idea. If you picture a wheel with a center hub and an outer rim, um, you know, adults can use this as a regular reflective practice, or even kids can be taught this as a drawing. Mm. And I'll give you an example of a five-year-old named Billy who used this, and it really helped transform his life. And in this wheel, it's basically a visual image of a way to think about the mind. Now, the mind includes a lot of things, but one of the things it includes is the experience of knowing or being aware. Sometimes we call it consciousness. Hmm. And when you're conscious of something, you actually have the ability to change what you're doing and to make a choice. So awareness is really important because it allows us, for example, in Billy's case, to get out of old habits. So he had been in one school, had learned the habit in his family and his old environment of using violent behavior to deal with conflicts. So he had been expelled from the preschool and also ultimately the kindergarten he was then in and sent to another school and he entered Mrs. Smith's kindergarten class. Now she taught the wheel of awareness as a drawing for the kids in kindergarten. These are five-year-olds. And on the next day, she wrote me an email telling me this, that Billy came to her and said, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, I'm lost on the rim. I've got to get back to my hub because I'm about to hit Joey on the yard, <laughs> my blocks. Now, what was Billy talking about? He was saying that basically Mrs. Smith taught him that you can be aware in the hub, but the thing you're aware of, like what you see or what you hear or what you smell or taste or touch or even what you feel like an impulse to hit someone is a point on the rim. And when we learn to distinguish the knowing of awareness in the hub from the knowns, like what you think or feel or hear or see on the rim, you're empowered to actually make a choice that's different from being on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. And so she wrote me later, because I told her, tell me how it goes, that Billy, in fact, did learn how to take a break, get back into his hub, and make choices. And this is where this wheel of awareness is so exciting because whether you're five or 55, you can actually transform your life by making the container of consciousness larger with this simple drawing for a young kid, but a practice for an older person. Uh, you make the hub larger, more accessible, and you expand awareness. And this actually changes people's lives. Mm, I would love for n to know a little bit more about what is the the practice or the skill that gets us back into that hub or, or expands that hub more? Well, the skill is exactly the way you're describing it. If you think about it this way, let's say you were Billy and it was before you came to Mrs. Smith's class and Joey takes your blocks and inside of your body, you start getting tense in your muscles, your heart is racing, you're breathing fast. You basically are in a threat state because those are blocks you were playing with. And in your head brain, you've got these deeper structures, we call it the downstairs brain, where those deep structures are saying threat, threat, threat. And so now you can fight, flee, freeze, or faint. You're now going beneath the higher thinking part of the brain to the, the upstairs brain to being um, taken over essentially by these very primitive reactions to threat. Mm. So if in your particular family you saw lots of people yelling at each other, hitting each other or getting into the aggressive fighting mode, then that may be something you've learned to do. So out on the yard then without an intervention like the wheel, what you do is you basically have the lower part of your brain, the downstairs brain, get into the fight mode, your arm gets raised and you hit mm -hmm. Joey. And there's no intervening pause, there's no reflection, there's no conscious awareness where you're saying, hmm, I feel like hitting him because he took my block, but that's actually not a very helpful thing to do. It's not helpful for him, it's not even helpful for me, so I think I'm not going to do it. Mm. So you can have an impulse and then a space between the impulse and the action 
that makes all the difference in developing what we call emotional intelligence and social intelligence. It's that pause and, you know, in the wheel metaphor, basically, if you think about it this way, if awareness is in the hub and think of it like the size of an espresso cup, right? For a lot of us, without learning differently, you have an, a hub the size of an espresso cup. Mm -hmm. And let's say life dishes out like uh, a challenge. Let's call that a tablespoon of salt. So if your espresso cup size container of awareness, which let's say it's filled with water, gets this tablespoon of salt dumped into it, you know, Dr. Silverman, how would that be to drink that water? It sounds disgusting. I'm already like sort of puckering and, <laughs> and thinking that I would definitely not want to be drinking that water. Exactly. So that would be a limited hub, if you will, limited container of awareness. Now imagine if we could do a practice, which I'll explain to you in a moment, where we make your container of water of consciousness, this hub, the size of a hundred gallons. Mm. And now life, like it will, will dish out a challenge, like a tablespoon of salt. And now we dump that tablespoon of life's challenge of salt into your now 100 gallon hub of awareness. And now we stir it up. And what would it taste like, that water? You wouldn't detect any salt at all, most likely. I mean, it would be as if it wasn't really there. Exactly. And you just drink from the water of life. So when we talk literally about expanding awareness, this metaphor of the wheel of awareness has been found, whether it's in kindergartens or in graduate students or in people out in the world and doing their life journey, um, it's amazing, but when you do the practice, which I'll describe now, of either for a young kid just drawing it and saying, wow, my awareness is in the hub, the things I'm aware of are on the rim, and then as life goes by, you realize you can continually return to the hub, that's just a metaphor, but in, in a reflective practice, like I do this every morning, when you move this metaphoric spoke of attention around the rim, so you have a segment of the rim that represents the first five senses, you know, what you hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. You may move the spoke metaphorically over in your mind's eye to the second segment, which is the internal sensations of the body. You move it to the third segment, which is mental life, like feelings and thoughts and memories. You move it even to the fourth segment, which is our relational connections to other people and to nature. And there's even a more advanced step we can talk about uh, that comes along with that. And all that does is basically distinguish the hub of awareness from the rim of the knowns. And when you learn that, that simple skill of distinguishing being aware from what you're aware of, everything changes. You've now made your small espresso cup hub now 100 gallons, and you are able to hold in awareness, let's say, a feeling of sadness or distress or an impulse to hit someone or, you know, a memory that's really painful. These uncomfortable states, when your espresso cup size awareness deals with them, gets flooded and the, the salt overwhelms you. But when you learn to cultivate the hub, everything changes. You have this expanded what I call window of tolerance for dealing with uncomfortable things and then you can sit with what's called presence, let's say as a parent, and you can sit being very aware of what's happening, letting it rest there, not having to act on it, which is a rim thing to act. And of course in life you have to act, you get in a car, you have to press on the brakes, there's nothing wrong with the rim. It's just that you wanna have also a very capable hub so that you can make choices and when you need to, make changes in patterns of your behavior. So is, are we asking ourselves really what you were saying about the little boy on the, on the recess yard, that when they have that impulse, then it's just that moment of pause when you're expanding that hub and saying to yourself, but what would this do for me? Or how does this serve? Or how would this help me? And it, maybe it's not going to help me. Just that moment of pause of going through some some possible questions or, or being aware of your body state and what your thoughts are, that 
it would then shift your uh, uh, shift the sort of large container from something small to something big. So then you're reducing the importance of that one thing that's going on in your life. Is that sort of what's going on? I think that's absolutely what's going on. And you say it so beautifully. I would just build on those very powerful words that you've articulated that it's exactly what you said, that when the rim is the big thing and it's just a small espresso cup size container of the hub, then what happens is that singular point on the rim, like let's say I'm building on the yard and Joey took my box and so I feel an impulse to hit him, right? Because he took my block and I'm mad. So I'm in fight mode, right? Mm -hmm. So when that singular rim point, I'm angry he took my block, and the feeling in my body, I'm going to hit him, is the only thing that's there, then an impulse turns to action without the intervening pause. So that's unfortunately what happens in our world that creates a lot of problems, both, you know, in families and on schoolyards, as well as in nations and international things. Mm -hmm. So when you have the pause, here's what it does. It's exactly like you said, instead of the singular rim point, being the totality of your reality in that moment. You have this broader expanse. And so, yes, you're aware of the impulse, fine. You're a human being, you have all sorts of things going on inside. But the pause allows you to not only be aware and put a buffer, a a, a space between the impulse and the action, but for all sorts of reasons I describe in the book, Aware, it's not only this hub is not only the source of being aware, it's actually the source of making other choices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a really fun scientific way that we can get into or not. But, but it's, it looks like when you do a deep dive into the science of consciousness, that when you cultivate that hub, you're cultivating not only a pause, but you're cultivating direct access to other choices. Mm -hmm. Right. It's interesting. I was talking to a teenager recently about the frustrations that she was having with a friend of hers. And that, that person became so important. Everything that person said or did became you know, the, almost the spokesperson for what was really going on in her life. But when you step back and you, you become aware of the other people in your life, the other things in your life that are meaningful to you, your other friends, uh, the other relationships you have, then it sort of reduces the importance of that person. And you can step back and say, well, actually, my reaction may be too large for this particular person. And because I have all these other people in my life and all these other really great things, by reducing that person, you're sort of getting back into that hub and realizing you have other choices in the way that you react to that person and how you feel in your body. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So good. We are on the same page. Now, I want to shift things to the actual adult, because you talk so much about this in your book. And you talk about your mental state and your awareness and how it can impact our relationships and our actual attachment to our child. So how can awareness really make a difference in our relationship to our child and, and, and even as a, as a teacher to a student or a parent to their own child? Yes. Well, it's, it's so great, that question. Um, and let's start with a simple word uh, and then give an example of it. You know, the word is presence, mm. you know, with a C-E, you know, right. <laughs> uh, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. So presence is a really fascinating state of being. And there are a number of, you know, really interesting practical implications of it. There's things you can learn to do to develop it in your life as a parent, for example, or teacher. Um, And from the science side, you know, there's all sorts of very relevant notions about it. But let's just say this, that presence, let's define it. Presence would be considered a receptive, that is, open state of awareness that is not being 
um, restricted and constrained and filtered by a bunch of preconceived ideas or judgments or ways that you basically alter perception based on your expectations. So as we learn throughout life, you know, it's a lifelong journey to cultivate presence. You're kind of dropping into this, if you will, pure hub of the wheel so that you're, you're open to things as close to they actually are as you can. So the direct implication of that for parenting is that if you're a child with a parent, let's say, who has presence, what that means is that if you express something to them non-verbally or verbally, um, the parent will do three things. They will be receiving your signals, they'll be able to make sense of them in a very open way, and then they're going to respond to them in a timely and effective manner that's called contingent communication. And, you know, I'm an attachment researcher, and when you look at attachment research across all cultures, contingent communication with these three phases is found everywhere. It may be done in different kinds of ways, but ultimately it's about how the child is authentically seen for who she or he is, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the way the brain and the head develops, for example, we learn who we are through the responses of our caregiver. Mm -hmm. And when the caregiver is present, when the caregiver has parental presence, then what we're being given is this beautiful resonating way that you're joining with your caregiver that lets you as a baby or young child or older child or adolescent or anybody, you learn who you are in an authentic way when a parent has presence. Now, when a parent doesn't have presence, and it can be impaired in all sorts of ways, and we call it, you know, insecure attachment, basically, you develop, there are lots of different ways of describing it. But the general process is that you don't get the opportunity to see yourself clearly in the eyes and face and responses of your caregiver. So what you're given back instead of that contingent communication is a kind of non-present connection with your parent so that what you see is more um, a product of the parent's judgments, expectations, mm -hmm. um, you know, pre-existing views of who you should be, who they wish you were, their mm -hmm. disappointment in you, all that stuff. So, you know, all that is kind of hidden behind the scenes. You then get this response. So all you can do as a little kid is soak that response mm -hmm. in as if that is who you really are when it's not. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of different pathways that that takes, but the overall general thing to say about it is you get a kind of, I don't, I mean, distorted maybe a little strong, but you get a not authentic view of yourself. And so you start growing up in life either confused about who you are or disconnected from who you are, or even fragmented, depending on what happened. And... And all those things make it challenging for you yourself to have presence because you're so filled with kind of confusion about who you actually are that it's hard to just drop into just being open to other people because you don't even know how to be open to yourself. Mm. Yes, I can imagine how damaging that can be. And, you know, understanding for parents, and we, we talk about this sometimes, that we it's important to love the child that you have and be there for the child you have, not the child you wish you had, not the child you thought you'd have, not the child that, you know, your next door neighbor has or your brother or sister has, but your child and really see them for their strengths and what they bring to the table rather than what you see as their, their shortcomings. And, and perhaps, you know, that you're magnifying their perceived shortcomings through not being fully present. I can imagine also that, you know, our, our world of, of multitasking and, um, you know, feeling torn and, and pulled in so many directions can have an impact. So, so one of the things that I'm thinking about is that, you know, parents and, and teachers can, can certainly come with baggage. I mean, they come with life experiences, we come with, we come with old wounds and frustrations and preconceived notions, pet peeves, even 
traumas, and they can set us up for being reactionary, um, overprotective, or wary, or destructive, or dist- destructive, or, or distrustful. Um, so I'm wondering if you you have anything to say about if we've ha- come with these preconceived notions, if we come with these traumas and this extra baggage, how can that wheel of awareness really help us parent in a more connected and pr- reflective way? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, in the book Aware, I give five examples of people who've used the wheel across the lifespan. One of them is the example of Billy, the five-year-old. But another is uh, a young woman who, you know, was struggling with kids at home and with exactly what you were saying, all sorts of stuff that was baggage in her life. And it talks about how the wheel um, really helped her. And and to summarize what she went through, um, basically she was um, overwhelmed with these young kids at home, um, didn't really have much support, and her own... um, way of being raised made it very confusing for her to find a way to just be clear. And so she was filled with lots of stress, lots of reactivity from the rim, if you will. So um, for her to cultivate access to her hub um, was life changing because Mm. what it meant was that all of the baggage, Dr. Silverman, you're referring to, you know, can be thought of as rim stuff. Mm Right. And the rim stuff acts as what you could call a filter of consciousness that changes the contents of consciousness so that you're constantly, you know, reacting to your kids, you know, kind of like your mom reacted to you or your father, you know, reacted to your mom and how you soaked that in, all sorts of things in her particular case. Um, but each of us has, you know, potentially some kind of baggage like that. So the rim sort of filters what our experience is. And for, Someone like her who, and uh, many of us who didn't have parental presence as our background, then what happens is we don't develop much access to our hub. We don't have much capacity to just be present without being swept up by the judgments inside of us. So what happened for her was she was able to do the wheel of awareness as a reflective practice, not just as Billy, a five-year-old, drawing it as a drawing, but actually doing it as a reflective I call it integration of consciousness practice where she was differentiating the rim from the hub and then systematically linking together with this spoke of attention. And what she found was that the hub, which was hard to access at first, but then soon was a little bit of practice, she realized it was a sanctuary Hmm. because the hub is, in a sense, filter-free. It's the pure awareness that allows you to look at the rim as something that is a mental construction, like a filter, like a judgment, like an expectation, or even like a distorted view that came from your parents' way of interacting with you. And now she could actually gain access to and expand this hub of her mind so that when things would get tough, let's say, with her kids, and she found herself getting reactive mm-hmm. and, you know, in the past would yell at them and really get out of control. She could, because she had been practicing it, turn to her hub, which for many people is a source of serenity and tranquility, clarity, peace, a sense of openness. It's where presence comes from, that hub. And so her kids would then start reacting differently. Mm. And she was empowered, actually, to have this place uh, that she was always carrying around with her. So she didn't have to turn on a gadget or, you know, run to somebody's house. Or It, it, was, it was always there for her. This is the beautiful thing about it. Um, you know, it doesn't require recharging a plug or, you know, it's not, it's just something you have. And this is what, you know, for me is so exciting about the Wheel of Awareness practice. And I love, you know, gadgets and gizmos. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with them. But what you want to do is empower people to actually have a source of strength inside of them that doesn't require a switch on an an object to turn it on. It's something inside of all of us, but we can cultivate it. And that's what she learned to do. And everything changed after that because then instead of feeling like at any moment she could flip her lid, at any moment her kids could overwhelm her, you know, she realized that she could be actually a reliable source of presence 
for her kids and ultimately for herself. Mm. And that's a deep kind of growth that is like a gift that keeps on giving, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And when she was doing this, was she in the beginning was it was it a lot of like mindfulness or um, meditation or or breathing exercises or what helped her to because so many of our parents are dealing with this very thing right now I mean really it's a lot of you know they tell me that they start yelling and they get really frustrated and and their kids are you know out of control and and they're asking for the techniques that help them to get to that serenity that you mentioned. What was it that that sort of helped her to get there and and really use your wheel productively so that she felt that she could widen that hub so much? Right, exactly. Well, the first thing to say is that the wheel of awareness as a practice begins with, you know, strengthening your focus of attention. So doing a little bit of a breath practice initially was helpful. But, you know, the breath practice is a great starting place. Mm. But there are three pillars that are built into uh, the wheel practice that research has proven are very core features to training your mind to develop this presence, this tranquility. And not only does it help your relationships with others and even yourself, it actually has been shown to improve a number of physiological measures of well-being like reducing stress hormones or reducing stress like improving your cardiovascular risk factors like your blood pressure and your cholesterol levels like um, reducing inflammation and it does that through actually changing these um, molecules that control the regulation of genetic expression that that are responsible for the inflammatory response it improves your immune function, um, and it also optimizes the level of an enzyme called telomerase, which is the enzyme that repairs and maintains the important caps on your chromosomes called telomeres. Mm. So, you know, I'll talk to you now about how she did it, but I just want to say that this move, of course, is going to improve her parenting skills and her own internal um, joy of parenting will be greatly enhanced. And in addition, she's going to be a lot healthier. And when I turned in my book Aware, uh, you know, to get ready to be published, and one of the people writing the endorsement is Alyssa Eppel, who, um, with Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering this system at the ends of the chromosomes, the telomere system. They have a beautiful book called The Telomere Effect. So Alyssa wrote to me, Alyssa Eppel, and she said, is your book at the printer yet? I said, well, almost, not yet. Why? What's up? What do I need to change? She goes, well... You just left out one thing. And I said, what did I leave out? She goes, yeah, it raises telomerase levels, and that's great. But you should also add it slows the aging process. Mm, yes, I saw that. Yes. And, and so I said, can I really say that? She goes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and I have shown that. So I said, okay, Alyssa is an esteemed scientist. Elizabeth Blackburn won the Nobel Prize. So I'll, I'm going <laughs> to, that's pretty mm -hmm. audacious, but I'll say that too. So it even slows the aging process. So, you know, here's the exciting thing. What we're about to talk about, about how to do it, and this is why I'm so excited about the book Aware, because mm -hmm. it just makes this accessible for everybody, is you take these three pillars of focusing attention, and on the first two segments of the rim as you're doing the practice, you're focusing attention on, you know, what you hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. You then move the spoke, this metaphoric spoke of attention around in your mind's eye, and I guide you through this. You know, you get it from my website, and people do it. Uh, and you go and you do um, the internal sensations of the bodies. That's the sensation of muscles and bones, and the genitals, and the organs, like the intestines, the respiratory system, the heart. And this is called interoception. Okay, so the first two segments are you're really building this focus of attention that really strengthens part of the regulatory aspect of the mind. Then in the third segment, as you move the spoke over one more time, to this segment, you're opening up awareness. So instead of focusing attention on a specific mental activity like thinking or remembering or feeling or something, you're actually opening to any of those things. So now you've changed to the second pillar of mind training that supports all these physiological improvements that we mentioned. And this is called open awareness. 
And really here, the way to think about it from a, a wheel point of view is you're sitting in the hub with the spoke out of this third segment of the rim and you're basically saying, bring it on. Mm. Something, I'm gonna sit in awareness. I'm not gonna control what I'm focusing on like breath or what I'm seeing or something like that. I'm gonna open to any kind of mental activity and of course you can even open it up to the whole rim but let's just stay here in the third segment of the room here. You say, bring it on. Mm. And you learn that no matter what the feeling is, however uncomfortable it is, or thought, however obsessive it is, or memory, however distressing it might be, you have this incredible moment in your development to realize no matter the discomfort of a rim element that arises in thought, feeling, or memory, or anything else that's in the mind, you know, mind act, mental activity, you have this clarity of the hub and this bring it on attitude. Uh, and we do it in very specific ways, like, you know, just being open to what's happening and then studying how things first arise, stay present, leave awareness. And there's even a more advanced step that people really enjoy where you bend the spoke around and aim it right into the hub. Some people like the idea of retracting the spoke and leaving it or leaving it in the hub or just having no spoke at all and just resting in the hub. And, you know, I've done this systematically with a lot of people, but in one study I did, it was with 10,000 people. Mm. And when they took the microphone, for those who took the microphone, you know, the, the reports are so fascinating. You'll see the, the summary of these in the book. Um, but what generally people say all around the planet is you know when they rest in that hub there's this sense of openness mm. and a loss of time in the sense of just feeling quite at ease and some people feel love and some for some it's god for some it's deep connection um for many it's joy you know and this joyful state um then becomes kind of this bedrock that's available to you so that you now have this fascinating um, combination of whatever the thing happening from the rim is, even if it's a distressful thought or emotion or memory, um, you have it balanced with this spacious, joyous, deep, grateful stance of the hub itself. And at that moment, then even if it's a distressful thing, you really cultivate this presence because basically, you are alive, and you have this, you know, I call it coal, curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love, this coal state of mind that comes from the hub. That's what presence is really all about. Mm -hmm. And so you cultivate that, and then you also then move the spoke over to the fourth segment of the rim, where you cultivate your appreciation and awareness of your connection to other people, mm -hmm. nature, to the planet. And, and you do this with some statements of kindness. So this is the third pillar of the training, which is developing what I call kind intention. Some yes. people caring and compassion. But it's really you're cultivating attention, awareness, and intention. So attention is focused, awareness is open, and intention is kind. And when you cultivate these three things, the research shows, you know, you develop these positive changes. You also grow more integration in the brain, which makes your brain more regulated and, you know, basically a, a more resilient brain. And so in all these ways, this one practice, and literally it's a daily practice you can do, so people stream it from our website, and what you get is the three pillars in one practice. So interesting. And I, I wanted to expand on that idea of kind intention. And I mean, there's been a lot of research on gratitude and and self-gratitude. And I know you talk often about radical compassion, compassion for yourself, compassion for others, uh, yep. even down to those mantras that you, you say to yourself while becoming aware, which I thought were really interesting. I, I'd love for you to talk about what, what sort of compromises our compassion and, and how those mantras can kind of bring us back and, and cultivate more self-compassion and compassion for others. Absolutely. Well, uh, a couple of things. I think uh, when you use the term mantra, I think you mean like verbal statements. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing, just to start with that latter part of your question. Um, you know, 
what research shows with verbal statements, and just to give you an example, you know, uh, may I be happy? Let's just use that very simple one. Um, you know, or may others be happy? Now, that statement is basically activating in your brain and your head. And I always say brain in your head because you have a brain around your heart and you have a brain around your intestine. And, you know, and so I just want to acknowledge that this is actually your third brain, but people usually just use the word brain, so we'll leave it at that. But, you know, you have a lot of neural networks that are processing information in the body and the head is just one of them. Um, so when, when we look at studies of that, when you actually use words, inner thoughts with words, you're not only activating the linguistic centers of the brain, but when it's done with authenticity, I mean, that you really mean what you're saying, not just in a mocking way, you know, saying it uh, in an inauthentic way, but when you say it with authentic intention, then what happens is those linguistic representations in the brain that are being activated with your intentionally reciting an internal voice with words actually activates the circuitry that those words are representing. So in other words, if I say, I hate myself, I, mm. hate, I hate myself, yeah, I'm gonna activate circuitry of hatred toward me, mm. you know? Or if I say, you know, you're doing fine, you're doing fine, I'm actually gonna activate a kind regard to, to this inner life. And when you do it for other people, too, you, you actually activate circuits of not just empathy, you know, feeling another person's feelings, but what's called empathic concern, which is the window toward what's usually called compassion, which is sensing another suffering and wishing them well. But even more than compassion, the thing why we want both empathy and compassion is empathy also includes something called empathic joy, which is I really wish wellness and success on other people. So this now brings up the first part of your question, like what gets in the way? And I think what happens are a couple of things. One is we live in a contemporary culture where there is a lot of messaging, unfortunately, in homes, in schools, with social groups, with the media, and even from science that reinforces a view that the self is separate mm. and that there's a deep sense of inadequacy in resources and there's a desperate need to make sure your separate self is somehow distinguished so it can be um, in a survival mode, essentially. And the way I describe this when I'm asked to go to schools and teach kids in high schools, let's say, or middle schools, you know, is I say, it's as if the culture wants a child to think of themselves as a candle and that who they are is the wax of the candle. And, you know, they should be the shiniest wax when they take a test, you know, in sixth grade or, you know, get into this fancy middle school or, you know, really work hard in high school to distinguish themselves. So when they apply to college, they get in the most competitive college and the college will assess them in the application process on the shininess of their wax. Hmm. And ultimately, you know, what are you trying to do? You're trying to achieve this entry into the most elite graveyard, you know? And it's this this perpetual sense of, I gotta, as, as the saying goes, you know, race to nowhere. Mm. What it means is that if you see another candle next to you, you know, that's lit up, you wanna blow out their flame and then blow out the other flame, blow, so that you're the only candle lit up. So when you apply to a fancy college, they're gonna pick you over your colleagues. Mm -hmm. It's a, this destructive, competitive, yes. you know, fear of missing out, sense of inadequacy. It's terrible. So I think that gets in the way. And so what I say to the kids in school, and you can see this on our website at a high school, unfortunately, where there are a bunch of suicides, and they asked me to do an intervention, and the students made a video of the talk I did for the kids and the parents and the teachers and the administrators, so you won't see them because you'll see the back of their heads, but you'll see me because I'm facing the camera. And you'll see me say this to them, which is that think about another way of living where instead of thinking you're just the wax, think that you're also the light. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that your job is to what? When you see a candle next to you that's not lit up, you lean over mm -hmm. to her and you light her wick. And then you see somebody to your other side, he's not lit up, you light him up. And then I say to the kids, what did it take away from my flame mm. to light these other two candles? And the kids go, nothing. And mm. then someone shouts out, but it made the world a brighter place. And I go, yeah. That's the world we need to create because compassion and kindness and caring and empathy, all those come from that kind of integrated way of living. You know, there's plenty to go around and we need to light up this world. And you could say it's the light of love. Absolutely. It's the light of awareness. Absolutely. It's a light of presence. Absolutely. All these things actually have a deep scientific grounding in the same essence. And, you know, when you see people, because we I consult the schools where we've structured the school around this kind of point of view, when you see them, you see these kids live as a, you know, there's a term I use called MWE, M-W-E, mm -hmm. where you say you're not only a me in your body, and yes, you know, you should enjoy your body, take care of your body, protect your body, feed your body, get good sleep for your body, all that stuff is the wax. Great, that's a me but you are equally the light, and that's the we. So you don't get rid of the wax, all of it is good, so it's me plus we, and if you want to integrate those together, you get a we. And you should see the eyes on these kids who are facing the situation where their colleagues have killed themselves, mm. and they're being given this toxic lie that the self is a separate entity, and there's no, it's a lose-lose situation when you live like that. Mm -hmm. And I say, look, there's a way out of this where we can actually change the way we define what the self actually is. It's a me plus a we, and you are not a solo self. You're an inner self and an inter self, and that's what a we is. Mm -hmm. And we can make these changes happen in the world. I love that. I think that is absolutely beautiful. And I really appreciate the scripting because it means that somebody who's listening, a parent or a teacher or a coach can use that same scripting with the child in their life. Um, and, and I just love the, the whole metaphor of, of the candle and making sure you're lighting others. What a, what a beautiful way of, of helping kids to see that they are powerful and that they are integrated and they are connected to themselves and to others. So I really appreciate that so very, very much. So thank you for exactly. giving that. I love well, that. And that's something, you know, if you think about everything we are on this journey to do, what you're doing, what I'm doing, all of us together, you know, I am so optimistic that when we talk about something like, let's say, cultivating consciousness, what that sounds like a fancy term. It's really this simple. It's cultivate your access to the hub. Realize that the lie you've been told that the self is separate is only a point on your rim and come to feel from the clarity of your presence that you can actually develop, that actually who you are is way more than your body, right? And that way, actually, and I discussed this in the Aware book, even your approach to your own mortality develops a very different way of being. As a parent, like I, since that talk that I gave, I've gone in other parts of the country, that was up in Palo Alto, I'll be in New York and someone will say, my sister-in-law was at that talk you gave in Palo Alto. Mm. I don't know what you did, but you totally changed the way she approached her kids. Mm. I said, what do you mean? Goes, well, before it was all about these grades and that grades mm -hmm. and this school. And then she realized life is about gratitude and connection and joy. And listen, if you want to be competitive, be competitive with the world's problems. Mm. So that when you beat a world problem, Everybody benefits from your competitive nature, right? So it's a win-win thing. No one's taking away, you know, energy and let's, let's beat it. Yeah, let's beat, you know, poverty. Let's beat the fact that there's violence in the world and there's conflict and there's racial issues and sexist issues. There's so many things to compete against. We're on this team together. We are on this team together. And we can really harness that capacity for collaboration and connection. And also, some people like to be competitive. Great. There's a lot to compete against. There's a lot of work for all of us to do. 
Absolutely. I think that really goes to the way that when I was first using the introduction here to say that we have so many pressures around us and we feel like we are constantly competing. Um, We want our kids to academically succeed and athletically succeed and musically succeed. And we have so many pressures that we put on ourselves and others. It really goes to, to say how important that awareness is and where those messages are coming from so that we realize what's really important. And then when we realize what's really important in our lives, we're able to be a really good shining example to our children and help them to to really see what is authentic and beautiful and important in their lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I know every kid is different. You know, every kid has a different way that they are. And if we have 7 billion of us on the planet, you know, there's 7 billion ways to be. And that being said, you know, it, it's, a, of course, a life's journey to say, well, who am I really? And what's my role in life and all this stuff. So it's, it's tough being a human being. There's no question about it. But when I see, you know, our two kids are, are in their um, mid to late 20s now. And when I see the fruits of really having a kid, you know, when she or he is young, tuning into what really they feel inside of them, right? So that's the reflective part. And the importance of relationships in their lives, right? The connected part. And then uh, a third R is, you know, resilience. The resilience they face when life dishes out, you know, the challenges that life inevitably dishes out to anybody, you know, they are coming from this really deep grounded place. And if they've, you know, the studies, for example, on growth mindset are that, you know, if you realize you can come from inside, face a challenge, it may not go the way you expected it to, but it's not some uh, statement that you're a failure, it just means you can try in a different way or try harder or you know, prepare yourself in a different way. That's Carol Dweck's beautiful yes. work on mindset. And if you build into Angela Duckworth's fabulous work on grit, mm-hmm. what it says is that if you as a parent can help your child get in touch with what they're really passionate about. And, you know, one way of defining that passion is what do they get pleasure out of and what do they have a proclivity for, right? So in each of our two kids, you know, they have different passions and and they're not the same people. Okay, then as you pursue your passion, what Angela Duckworth has shown beautifully is that it's not just about following your passion, you've got to also find your purpose. Mm. And here, purpose is defined as not that you just get pleasure, pleasure is fine, but that it's of service to the benefit of another person's life other than your own. So let's just call that purpose. So when you combine the passion, you know, having a proclivity and pleasure with passion that is being of service to others, then you get persistence, which is what grit is, right? Mm-hmm. And when when I see this in my two kids, I got to say it's so beautiful because it's exactly what Angela Duckworth and grit found. It's exactly what Carol Dweck in the foundational studies on growth mindset suggests. And from what we're talking about, these things are not just theoretical things. It's something that Tina Bryson and I wrote in the book Yes Brain, and it's what I write in the book Aware, that these are ways of having a yes approach to life, where you say, look, you're here. It's an incredible, incredible moment that you're alive on this planet. And how do you actually create a state of mind of awareness, this idea of presence, which you can cultivate with the wheel, so that each day is an opportunity to bring more integration in the world? How do you light up your own and other people's wicks? How do you make this a brighter world? And this is something, it's absolutely doable. Each of these books that I write are steps to doing that in whatever way and aware it's about you know, generating this deep understanding of consciousness which I think is what we need to do as a humanity, is to take this next step in our cultural evolution and expand the way we identify who we are. And with that open hub, you come to realize we can really create a kinder world together. It's so beautifully said, and and I think very important in a world that we get so many messages that say we're not enough and we have to keep striving um, to really look for your strengths and keep asking your kids to see others for their strengths, 
but also really focusing on your kids and seeing them for their strengths, not for what you wish they were, not for what your strengths are, you know, not for the, you know, oh, I want my child to be this kind of strong in this area, but really seeing them for what they bring to the table and and the unique aspects um, that may be so different from you and say, well, that's really cool. Tell me more about that and how can we cultivate that more? It's really just really interesting. Yeah, that's beautifully said, beautifully said, absolutely. So tell us at this point what your top tip is. If we were taking all the things you said or maybe you haven't said yet, what would be your top tip to our parents, our teachers, our coaches who are listening um, that says how we can best help ourselves and others to be more aware um, so that we're more connected to ourselves and to others? Well, I would say my best tip is this idea that you can actually cultivate presence from the inside out. Mm-hmm. It's something, you know, we may wonder about what can we do, what can we do? There's actually something you can do. And, you know, I've been <laughs> it's working with clients, with patients, you know, as a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist for, you know, over 30 years now. And I can tell you that parents can get very... Um, uh, upset about what what the, how they're behaving about what they're doing and when we sit down together and I say look you are empowered to understand for example how your brain works you can understand if flipping your lid happens and instead of beating yourself up you can actually be kind to yourself and realize that whatever you've been doing you can actually develop more presence you can actually go from reactivity to receptivity and developing presence you can do with this wheel of awareness practice we've been talking about uh, mm-hmm. today and it's something that every parent can learn how to do. And so it's a, it's a simple tip, but it's actually a research-proven way to actually transform your life and create an opportunity in your relationship with your kids to allow them to thrive. Mm, well, some of those simple things are the very things that can make the biggest difference. So I appreciate that. What was your resource of the week? What should we do now to get more information about you and your fabulous new book, Aware, or any of your other books at this point? Yeah, well, you can go to our website, uh, drdansiegel.com, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com, and you can do the Wheel of Awareness practice there. You can um, find some all sorts of educational resources there, including you know getting uh, the book Aware or you know any of the parenting books that we have. Um, and there's lots of uh, video educational tools too, if that's something you like, or audio programs. So there's all sorts of things we have for parents and for cultivating your your individual well-being as well as the well-being of your family. Perfect. And I will have all of those tips and I will have those links on my website as well in the show notes for people who are driving right now. No worries. We've got you covered and uh, we'll have those links right there on my show notes so that you can go directly to Dr. Siegel's website and get his book and look at all the great things that he just talked about. I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, for your insight and your strategies. I loved what you said about Mui and uh, and presence. Um, And I just love that you have really created such an interesting way of, of talking about how we can access this awareness and this presence and really change our own brains and change our lives. And then, of course, change the lives of the children that we work with and who we love. So I I just appreciate your time so very much today. Well, thank you, Dr. Silverman. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. And Onward we go. That's right. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also up on Instagram and we'll be putting up all kinds of memes coming straight from this podcast because as you know, uh, as much as I do, Dr. Siegel said so many wonderful things that we want to make sure that we can see and share with others. And if you love this podcast, 
podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so others will get these outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes and their own schools. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts. The show notes will be up there. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fell short, and I know you're probably thinking about them right now, it's okay. You've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.